Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Culture and the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Tim Williams, I'm your host on the Grimshaw Culture and the City Podcast Series. My guest today is the urbanist and polymath, Dr. John Montgomery, uh, now a citizen of Brisbane, but uh, basically a citizen of the universe, who has written great books on cities, including The New Wealth of Cities, which is in the tradition of Jane Jacobs. What he doesn't know about cities isn't worth knowing. We talk about culture in the city. We talk about culture precincts, innovation precincts. We talk about the creative class. We talk about Olympic Games. We talk about everything under the sun from a kind of urbanist perspective. It's fun. It's insightful. It's rich. And it's got two Celtic voices. So what's not to like? John Montgomery. I I have uh, John Montgomery with me uh, here. And uh, um, this is a bit different to our normal podcast, apart from the fact there are not just one sort of Celtic voice, but sort of two Celtic voices, which is going to sound either poetic or discordant, whatever your tastes are. Uh, But it's also that, uh, John, I regard as uh, an urbanist and a kind of a theorist uh, about uh, culture of the city in a big way. Um, And um, so, although he will no doubt tell me in his very distinguished career, he's done some practitioner kind of stuff as well I, I think I think this conversation will be about some of the thinking uh, and some of the stuff that he's been doing for years at thinking about culture in the city but also uh, it will reprise some of his and my I suspect greatest hits but we'll also uh, look forward John so it's a pleasure to talk to you um, about these matters of which you know rather a lot so I, I'm, I'm expecting to learn in the next 40 minutes as well as uh, get you to tell us stuff. So how are you anyway? I'm good, and thanks ever so much for inviting me on this. No, no, it's great. You've got a really good track record. A lot of people will know of you, both in the UK, uh, you've worked in Europe as well, but also uh, in Australia, where you are now living in Brisbane. Uh, and I thought we'd, we'd talk first. Uh, my topic in these, in these uh, discussions has been, you know, culture and and the city and um it's uh it's interesting it's it seems to be a bit more it's it's been resonant for about 25 30 years i mean you and i know that cities have been at the heart of kind of cultural creation cultural mixing uh you know that the, they've been the center of creativity in in the arts forever um but it does seem to be at the moment let's start at the current moment that uh, where our cities have been through quite traumatic experiences I think uh, around COVID and then we've got hybrid working so people are talking about the reinvention of city centres and we're hearing about whether CBDs become more mixed use and actually become some people are calling them central experience districts so you know that's a and therefore I'm talking about the cultural offer that there has to be to attract people to come to the city centres Again, uh, what do you think about this? Uh, do you think it's a, a big moment for culture in the city? I think a lot of it will have to continue along a path that started in the modern sense, probably in the early 80s. There were some strands back then that gradually wove together um, in the next, say, over that the next 20 years then. And um, it was doing all very well, I think. In fact, I think the thing that stopped it was the Olympic Games in London's case, because he stopped the arts lottery. And secondly, the, um, the, the financial crisis in 2009, which just suddenly there didn't seem to be any money anymore for, for the bigger projects. Although, of course, it should be not just the big projects, it has to be kind of grassroots and smaller elements as well. So, you know, having made that proviso, I'm looking at it now and I'm thinking, like with the economy and cities more generally, we're going to see some change, but we're going to see a lot of things that stay broadly the same, although they'll change within that parameter too. I'll give you an example. Can you imagine not having the West End of London and going to the theatre? No, I don't don't see that that's ever going to die anytime soon. Or even going to the, you know, South Bank in London. You could say the same thing about South Bank in Melbourne, it seems 
seems to me. You've got all that big stuff's there and people are still going to want to go there. And visitors to your city, it's, it's one of the first things they do. You know, if you've got a really good art gallery, they'll fly over a whole continent or between continents to go to come to your city. Whereas if you've got a good theatre, they might just drive for an hour and a half. And if it's the library they're coming to, they'll get on the bus and come, you know, 10 miles or so. So there's, there's scales of this. But I, I do think that for really big things that are part of a, a city's core identity and also its life and its economy, I don't see these things unraveling to the extent that some people are suggesting. I think on the I, other hand, yeah, you go. some stuff will. Mm, okay, on you go. No, no, it's okay because I'm yeah, making okay. two separate I, points. What I was going to say was, um, I, I think I agree with you about um, cultural centres, cultural events, the theatre. You know, why would that change? And in fact, they might get reasserted because you know there might be less economic activity at the centre, but more cultural activity at the centre. I want to come back to that. But first, you, you touched on I think a really important place to start, really, which is. What was the trajectory? I can't even say the word now. What What was the trajectory of this whole thing about culture of the city up to the crash? What What was from the eighties to the crash? What What were we seeing? Right, I reckon it started with restructuring of um, the economy in in certain places. So I'll go back and and, and I think what was the first city I remember talking about that. Well, it was Glasgow uh, in, in the UK during the 80s. But before that, Pittsburgh was doing this when, you know, everything, you know, no, not everything, but the, the steel industry suffering. And they said, right, how can we get people into the city again? So they had this Pittsburgh triangle, and that was all to do with performing arts, mostly. Um, so that was happening, and then that kind, there was a thing called the British American Arts Association, and it started, you know, um, in, investigating urban regeneration linked to the arts in American cities and bringing it across to places like Glasgow, but also Liverpool. Uh, and people popped up in Liverpool. Um, I don't know if you did if you would ever have met Michael Parkinson. He was doing this stuff in about 1984. Uh, and, and then Franco Bianchini was his research assistant. So, um, so from arts and urban regeneration, we're suddenly starting to talk about town centres that need revitalised because of the shopping malls, you know, when everything was getting sucked out to, um, what was it called, that place? Blue Water oh, in yeah. Essex. So Ex-urban so, so shopping centre in the southeast of England. Yeah. That, that's right. So there was, there was a response there that said, oh, well, maybe the arts can help. Um, and then there was um, the fact that artists were becoming business people. I mean, they always had to some extent. There was a guy popped, popped up again. This was in London called Nick Garnham. And he comes out with this phrase, the cultural industries. Yeah. And what he's saying is things like the music industry, film, television, design at, at, at high levels. These are all, um, these are operate in commerce as well as in the arts. So they're cultural in industries. So by the time you've woven arts and urban regeneration, activity and events, revitalization, and um, these cultural, later creative industries together. You've got, you've got three strands of something, which eventually, by the time you add in um, place, which we'll probably come back to them, um, you've got what becomes known as um, cultural quarters and then um, the creative class. So I reckon that's how we got to 2002. 2002 is where I think what I'm about to hear what happened in 2002, which is I think Richard Florida published in 2002 the creative, the creative class. Now before we get there, before we get there, because I I know you and I have probably been itching to have a go at this subject separately and together for a while, but before we do, I want to go back and think about that that whole thing. So we're talking about um, a previous era of 
commercial and uh, possibly industrial activity in, in cities that kind of went to the suburbs or the exurbs, leaving a lot of uh, legacy buildings actually uh, in many places, uh, not unlike I think some of the discussions about COVID today, but let, let us say some stranded assets were available in city centres. I think the bit, I, I don't want to jump ahead, but I, I do think that the bit that goes with all this as well is the, is the slow emergence of the kind of knowledge economy as well. We'll come back to that. That, that, that seems to, um, against what we expected it, you know, it would do once technology came along, when we thought it would lead to immediate decentralization, knowledge workers seem to like the idea of agglomeration and place. So I think there were sort of two things going on at the same time, but I think it's true, you're right. That, and I think we agree, artists, cultural, creative industry people sort of led the way back to the inner city, uh, I think is what I, I think happened. Mm. That they, they went to places like Shoreditch where property was cheap um, and was like, had lost its industrial and economic purpose, I think, right? So that's, that's, that was happening at, at the same time. So those things come together <laughs> and then, uh, uh, which, by the way, um, that book by uh, called The Great Inversion argues that um, that 30-year period is when uh, graduates come back to the city, you know, and it, they, there's a kind of phrase that came out of this, which is bright flight replacing white flight, as it, as it were, in a, particularly in American cities, you know, sort of bright flight, you know, graduates uh, following artists back to the inner city and all this kind of stuff. And it's this, <laughs> at this point... That the great poet of this of 2002, the great artist himself, uh, Richard Florida, emerges to tell us what we're seeing, right? He, he, he did, and I, and I think calling it the creative class was just genius. It's either that or it's so lucky, you know. Yeah, to just yeah. uh, you know, I remember talking to Charles Landry because he his book had been. Um, what was it? Was, was his was creative city? Yes. The creative city, I think, was published two years two years earlier. Yeah, but it didn't. And 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 it's it's every bit as good a book, I would say. But it didn't quite get the attention that, that Florida did because you know you could see it immediately, and politicians loved it. Oh, we're going to have a creative class and a creative economy. And well, I, I mean, you, and it went round the world. You know, it was. Like, I, my, looking at your CV, I think you you did quite well out of that 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 moment in terms of uh, doing lots of strategies. And good luck to you. And I'm sure they were really good. Uh, but you know, and I was uh, remember working on the public sector side, and I was working for the Thames Gateway at the time. We were trying to get lots of investment into East London, and we were deploying these this rhetoric of uh, you know, and, and actually thinking where next for a, a creative quarter in a in a rundown part of east london uh before you're right before richard florida came up with this creative class thing it was already definitely uh in the air oh, it was it was yeah. you know i mean you, you'd be very kind about things that i was involved in but you know i, I could point you to manchester in 88 89 again in 92 dublin in 91 Hackney in 92, you know, Shoreditch even. Um, yeah. So all of these things, I, I felt I'd been around the block quite a few times and um, uh, and, and was exporting it at this point, or bringing it with me, I should say, to Australia. One of the things that you raise, John, I think, uh, before we get, I, I would be interested in your critique of, of Richard Florida, actually, and at the moment of 2002, but just go back one step. I think what... Mm -hmm. Well, you and I both agree. Is is there's something about the economics of the of the inner city going on? Uh, there's a kind of churn going on in in. in I I don't want to come across as some kind of Marxist because I'm not. But the the kind of uh, mode of production, if you like, was changing. Uh, you know, we'd we'd lost an economic engine in some, and lots of people had fled. And London, we forget, London uh, by 1990. Four, I think, had reached its lowest, so the early 90s, of like 7 million. Uh, so these, these cities had lost people. Like you said, mm. Pittsburgh, they'd lost their function, they'd lost their people, stranded assets, and then all of a sudden other people start going in. Now, it's at this point uh, our friend, uh, and both of us know him, but uh, Richard Florida writes The Creative Class. As you say, brilliant encapsulation. What's right and what's wrong with it? There's been a lot of people interested in this question. What's right and what's wrong with it, do you think? 
Well, I'd have to say, I think there was a time before that. I mean, I was running around London with, with really great people like Robin Murray and George Nicholson. And, these, and there, the, the talk was of the new mode of production, which was uh, post-Fordist, and it was about flexible specialisation. So suddenly it was okay to be self-employed set up wee businesses, you know, and, and be that bit more kind of footloose and nimble than, than turning up at the factory gates. Now, I'm not knocking the factory gates. I'd like to see some of that, more of that back, please. But, you know, in, in, in these bits of cities, which eventually become quite trendy um, because of this, but also because they had beautiful building stock, you know, it's... Kind of the, perhaps the earliest bench, version of this might have been Primrose Hill. You know, I've yeah. never really wanted to go and live there yeah. um, at that time. And a lot of them were artists and writers and stuff. So, and and I think the, you look back on London, and it's like the poor old artists come and gentrify the place. This is what Sharon Zukin said about New York. You know, Manhattan, um, the, not Manhattan, but so and all of that stuff yeah. and people would um, they, they'd come in and they'd make it attractive and other folk would, would come in behind them about 10 years later the artists move on because it gets too expensive I know you want to come back to that point yeah. but Shoreditch which was cheap and falling down is now expensive and very 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 um, fashionable Right, you asked me about, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say to you that there was a mode of production change. And I, I think that Florida understood all that, but he, he was writing, he was looking back at it as, well, so were others. But, you know, other people had actually been in there doing stuff from a, an earlier time than before, um, before he came along. Also, if I may, I think, I think the way they set up his indices I think he got some of the causality back to the front. Oh, well, explain I mean, that. Explain. So what's what's his analysis and what, what do you think he got back to front? Well, he had like the Bohemian Index and the Gay Index and oh, there were a couple of others, but th those are the ones, the, the main ones probably. Um, and that because those people are in the city, attracts um, the the fact that they're there makes businesses develop and which is partly what I've just been saying. But the reason they're there is because they wanted to live in the city. Yeah. So it's a it's a two-way street. The city attracts these people and then these people help to make the, the, the city work better and also appeal to more people. Um, but it doesn't work for the whole of your life, you know. Um, people leave cities again, as perhaps as they get older. So I'm, I'm trying to say, yeah, that was the causality, but it, 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 it doesn't hold for all time for everyone. Well, yeah, I, I think also it doesn't hold for places for all time either. Your point earlier on about uh, shortage is that you know, shortage is now too expensive for the artist that Richard thinks saved shortage. <laughs> You know, so uh, so essentially, it was a transitional moment, and it may always be a transitional moment. Although your right. point earlier on again, John, I think was very important about the uh, the the building stock. That mm -hmm. uh, part of the reason why this strategy of of you know culture led renewal didn't work everywhere is that if you didn't have an existing <laughs> sort of place that could be renewed. You know, uh, if you like, and I, I some places just uh, which I will not name <laughs> were did not have the basis of this. Although we were all back in the early noughties and late nineties trying to create creative and cultural industry districts in the most unlikely places in the UK, as far as I can remember. So, is that fair? Well, um, I agree with you, but I mean, I don't want to mention any places either, but I, I remember, you know, everybody was popping up with this creative, this creative, that creative, that. Yeah. And you think, well, I, but it, it's not, it isn't Hackney, it's not Hoxton, it's, it's, it's not, you know, yeah. Manchester up there in Ancoats, you know, these, now, all of those places do in fact have what Jane Jacobs called aged buildings. Right, so you go into 
these old buildings, which these days, but you go into those because you like the buildings and you like the streetscape and you like the fact that it can all support mixed use. You can get your hands on a big space and turn it into a studio. So I, I, I do think that um, there are characteristics of certain types of urban places that make this more likely to be successful than others. So then the question is, which might be one you want to pursue, would be, well, if everybody's going to start leaving the city or the places out in the country or in towns or in villages that are going to have a similar or slightly different sort of cachet. Well, it's interesting. Before we get there, I, 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 I don't want to give up on my on my culture in the city moment because I, I love the history lesson that we're we're going through. So, so we could link the the, the moment of of Manhattan with the discussion now, actually, in one sense, which is that. Uh, so there we have a classic um, mode of production death, you know. Uh, so it was actually quite industrial uh, New York. People forget, and uh, lots of industries and stuff move outside the city. You know, uh, that there was it. The president uh, Ford said, uh, "Drop dead to New York." It was in serious trouble. Um, but what, what saved it was not just big money coming in and all that kind of stuff. I think, but actually, the rents got so cheap that they started attracting a, a mix of people. And, and, you know, instead of this being a creative and cultural industry strategy, this actually sort of happened organically on the basis of, of cheap rents, I think, and, and also dangerous places that only certain, you know, weird people would live in. You know, uh, the, the people forget how hostile some of these places were back in the 80s. And so you have the mm -hmm. artists go in. I just want to go back to this Richard Florida thing, because I... I think I think what's missed in this is your point is is the best one, which is there's something going on in these places. Something has happened to these places that attract these people in in the first place. And it and it and mm. I, I think there's also there's push and pull is what I'm saying. There's push and pull. I also think that there is a kind of demography thing which is missed slightly, which is the there's a bulge. We forget this is all baby boomer stuff to some degree, right? There, we the, the the baby boomers are far more culturally impactful. We were than uh, than people realize in the sense that uh, you know this uh, there was a the the, the the forty five to sixty where it is baby boomer is is produced the most teenagers that we've seen there are half the number of teenagers in Western society today as there were in the nineteen fifties basically so so those people had a culture and they had some economic power but they also didn't have big families and they didn't get married at uh you know 16 17 18 like my forebears uh, had and probably yours as as well so so they they they're like then and, and they go to university mm. and all this kind of stuff so there are different cultural well, I was going to say, they, yeah they go to the art college and university. they go to art college yeah. and stuff so so there's a kind of push and pull going on so there's emptying cities needing a new mode of production and then you've got these people who are kind of think well I can go and live there and they haven't got families necessarily and i think some of the stuff in richard Flores around there's a kind of in, in england we used to call it the pink pound stuff back in the in the 80s and 90s but mm. i think that was quite real and these were places that we never thought families would live in um i think so that there was quite a lot of individuals going back into these places and and so i do think there's a kind of push and pull moment and and all that then created as you have written about and you've studied an economic momentum which then attracts other money and, and attracts other demographies in, which actually kind of kill it. You know, gentrification follows in in the next gen, generation, maybe. What do you think about that? Well, I think it can, and it often does. I was struck with what you said about the, um, the baby boomers' creativity. Um, uh, they did go to art college. I mean, the Rolling Stones went to art college in the early... I'm talking about old man's music now, but Pink Floyd all met at... Um, is it Southampton College or someplace? Um, Pete Townsend was in Ealing Art School. You know, they, they were all, um, and they all, because of the changes in technology, they, they could all hear Elvis and Muddy Waters and Chuck Berry and stuff. And in Liverpool, um, the, the sailors coming back in the boats yeah. used to bring records from America. And, and so, I'm not sure if this would have been the Beatles, but people could hear the American music. And this is how you go English R&B, I think. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. probably just making too many 
leaps here. You know, no, no, no. I mean, there's a separate podcast to be had about the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 two way traffic of uh, R and B coming in and black musicians coming uh, to be play playing in northern cities and being accepted in the way that right. they weren't accepted in American cities, and then then they go back uh, with some further sort of interesting innovations actually picked up in, in England and then the English go over there and there's stuff like Led Zeppelin emerges out of all this stuff which was never going to happen from American music and we there's a separate podcast about this this international exchange between and I also love the idea that these ports in England were not parochial places you know that they, they were used yeah. to be part of an international you know kind of communication right. yeah. and, I, and I love it and, and Glasgow obviously uh, at the center of an empire at one, one point now We've reached two, 2002, right? So there's a prehistory to to Richard Florida's book. Right. Some of it. People then slightly go crazy, I think, in our trade of trying to get creative and cultural industries everywhere. A bit like, in my view, I don't know what you think about this, a bit like the innovation district craze of the last five or six years, which is, you know, actually in similar places, in, it seems to me. I mean, the uh, which and they all have like mixed use and a mix of old and new and walkable and you know, a uh, mix of uh, cultures and stuff. They sound quite similar places to me, to the creative and cultural industries centers. Now, gentrification, let's do the gentrification thing before we do the crash, because you can see it happening in places like Shoreditch before the crash. So the 80s gives and the 90s give way to something that's a bit more bourgeois, really, um, I think, than, than and probably everywhere. Is that, can we avoid gentrification? I mean, I'm not sure we can. What do you think about that one? Well, um, we've tried a couple of times, Tim, and I, I don't know that it's really been all that big a success, but, you know, and Temple Bar in Dublin was, it was, the place had 60 people living in it, and they had trees growing at buildings and stuff. The whole thing was smashed yeah. just about, you know, and they had to knock about a third of the stock down or, you know, it needed real serious repair um, and the, the strategy that emerged and that I kind of put into formal words was we'd have these 12 uh, existing and new small and medium scale venues which would be scattered through the area so that you could walk between them. So the urban design backed up the arts to that extent and you had these beautiful old streets and, and uh, buildings. And I remember saying, um, well, you're gonna, we're going to have to try and ring fence some of this, otherwise the rents will get too much for them and, and they'll, they'll leave. You know, and some of them did, you know, and they, some of those venues have changed now and they are now the same. Uh, although, uh, you know, there are, I mean, you too bought the Olympia Theatre and that's still there and um, the Project Arts Centre gets a lot of grant funding because it's Marxist, not as it's kind of radical Irish um, yeah. type of theatre. So that's all fine by me. But other, other things failed, you know, and, um, and then the area itself, there was never any affordable housing even considered to go in there. Well, it was suggested, but they, they thought it wasn't important. Uh, you get up to Manchester, and um, it's sort of similar thing now. You know, if, if you were to go wandering around um, Tibb Street in the northern quarter of Oldham, is it Oldham Road or Oldham Street? Um, you'd find that's all quite, quite pricey now. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's happened there. So I reckon the best you can do is, is go and, and ring fence certain buildings, certain... Um, I was going to call them institutions, but you know what I mean, in a local sense, you know, local important places, um, and also some of the housing stock. That's the only way you can do it, I so think. That's interesting. I agree with that. The the So you've got this broad change going on. It, it transitions, you know, it's like rundown places become transitional places. Artists and others go there. They attract others in. They become a bit more bourgeois, you know, for want of a better phrase. Uh, but but in certain places, may I want to drill down into this? Can you anchor, you know, have some anchor institutions and maybe some things like affordable housing that that maintain enough character and mix in the area? Um, I think that's a very British and European result in a sense. Because and I agree with it. But uh, I you know I noticed that 
that um, social housing in London is still probably about 30% of it. And it, it therefore means that you can have a bit of gentrification without losing all the kind of mix of population because of that social housing, I think. Anyway, but so let's just go back to this um, gentrification story. So do you think that in most of these cultural creative sort of quarters and stuff, um, they are, they're kind of bound to lead to a kind of en bourgeoisement uh, and then we have to think of where else they can go. I mean, where else we can have a creative and culture? How do you see that? Because that's what happened in London, I guess, where um, you have, um, let's think about it, you have Shoreditch give way to, I guess, Hackney Wick sort of Olympic Park area. They, they've become a bit more that, but it's not, it's not quite the same as Shoreditch. Do you think that these things just die or, or do you think they move? You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast Culture and the City series with your host Tim Williams. No, I think some of them will still be there. I, I, yeah. I've not been exactly. back to Hoxton yeah. in a while, but I'm sure there's still good stuff there. Yeah. Um, Shoreditch has become for architects and designers and advertising executives and stuff like that. But there's probably still some artists and 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 there as well. well I was thinking of. Uh, do you know North Kensington up Lisson Grove Way? And, um, no, I don't really. And, Grove, uh, and where the, where the kind of... It doesn't sound promising to an East Londoner like well, myself. North Kensington, oh, that was, oh, you know, it was quite, it's the, the bit up the road from um, Notting Hill. Yeah. And it's um, it was always kind of, I don't know, had car showrooms and all that stuff and gas ometers and stuff like that. And it, it never did all that well. Um, I'd like, and there was a guy called um, Benny Gray. I don't know if you ever heard, and he opened this thing called Canalot Studios. Uh, so that's a building in which filmmakers could sit halfway between Soho and the BBC. And and that's just, that's just genius as far as I was concerned. You know, he, he thought about doing this. And it was an old factory building that he converted into studios and offices. So things like that, and he did the same thing in Digbeth, actually, um, in Birmingham. So I'm thinking there's bits of this stuff still there, and it's yeah. still probably doing reasonably well. But maybe the housing stock becomes more expensive, and, and some of it moves away, but hopefully not all of it. Um, so you've got to kind of be aware, I think, that if you're going to go about a creative industry or a cultural quarter that this is a tendency that 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 might eventuate is likely to eventuate but you can do stuff to to, to stop it just it's pushing everything before out. we proceed to today i want to i want to ask you a very difficult consultancy kind of question which is if you were if you were advising somebody today or of what the features of a successful creative quarter were so that's one question. What, what are the successful features? And a caveat, I remember uh, 10 years ago, I think I was advising the Welsh government and they were putting some money into a place in a, in a valley town to create a kind of, um, a kind of state created version of, of factory records. As far as I could tell, it was a kind of, uh, it was like a, it was like an attempt to create a recording studio in the Hacienda, but from Cardiff Bay and the Welsh government spending the money on it without any real organic feel to like an area i mean it's like a you know it's not the richest place in the world but it, it you know which is not always a you know necessary when you've got creative people there but it didn't have any kind of critical mass uh, around it and it was just like money f thrown into an area and, and hoping mm -hmm. it would kind of explode what do you think the conditions of success are for a successful creative quarter that you know can last a bit you know longer than 10 minutes what do you think well, I reckon you have to have the strands and the threads already there. You know, you can't just make it scotch mist. So Sheffield did this very well, I thought. You know, sort of underappreciated city, if, if I could put it that way. Um, they, um, they, they set this thing up called Red Tape Studios when Mr Blunkett was the, the council leader. And um, so it sounds a bit like your thing in Wales. Um, but it, it was really quite modest, and it was just for unemployed kids to learn how to do sound recording. 
so, but at the same time, there was a um, an organisation called AVEC, Audiovisual Enterprise Centre, right? So they set up their own thing. So basically, that was individuals and wee businesses. By the time you add these two things together, you're beginning to see what became the Cultural Industries Quarter, which they then um, developed by putting in workspaces, a um, place called the Workstation, and also um, an art house cinema, because they're all into film, of course. Um, the university is not far away, so you're getting a steady supply of folk coming out and want to set up their own business. So you've you've got the you've got the makings of it there and you just what you have to do tim excuse me is tease those out so that's one two do we have any venues that we might want to hang things off uh, well like that cinemas which is a new one but in another place it might be a, an art gallery that, that actually could um, can be used to exhibit stuff which is what Corner House in Manchester did. It, it had, um, it's got cinema, but also had uh, these gallery spaces. So Manchester Arts could put shows on in there. That's important. So you need spaces to exhibit, you need spaces to make stuff. Um, and then, you know, from there it goes on to your built form. The people like the area, the mix of uses you find in there, the, the, all that kind of stuff, urban design type stuff that you were talking about. And then, I knew we'd get here in the end, you want your nighttime economy so as ah. they can all go running about, you know, chasing each other through, through Canal Street in Manchester or, or, or wherever it is. But we forget, we forget. Which was fun at the time. We forget some of these places we now love and think of as vibrant cities and stuff, they they were closing down at six o'clock uh, in the evening. Aye. And they had empty... Yeah in the cities often in the day. So these are much transformed places. So you've just set out a very good yes. list, right? A very good list, and I think that works. And I, I almost think, don't bother if you haven't got some of those features. It's, it's, a, it's a delusionary strategy for you. You know, you've got to have, I think for me, you've got to have a university. A university town is pretty a pretty central idea to it. It creates a natural audience for it. And, and you know, attracting them into your city centre is like strategy number one. It seems to to me, but uh, I want to I want to go forward now to you know we've 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 we're gonna miss the crash. The crash is, you know, we didn't really think, but in my view, uh, very deeply about what the crash meant at all. But we carried on doing stuff that we've been doing pre pre crash. The cities kept on growing, city centres, urban regeneration, probably probably not so many projects, but still people going into the city centres for their knowledge, jobs, and, you know, the, the recovery. You know, Melbourne, we forget. Melbourne in the early 90s had, like, 40 people living in it. Uh, and mm. the city centre, the city centre of Melbourne, mm. with 5 million people, didn't have many people living in the city centre. Now now it's got somewhere like 35,000 people living in the city centre. They weren't there before. So all that stuff, that phase of history, the great inversion, uh, um, uh, the, the book uh, called The Great Inversion, people are going... People with choice, money, small families, graduates, interested in the arts, culture, go to films, go to theatre, go and live near the inner city. And that worked as a model in lots of places, lots of continents for 25, 30 years. Then COVID, hmm. hits, right? Now, we it depends, you know. Well, I would, I would go on, sorry, sorry, I was going to say, well, I, I don't want to underplay the uh, which I persist in calling the subprime mortgage panic oh, yeah, um, okay. rather than the global right because that's what started it yeah. um, suddenly I don't think it just affected the banks and everybody obviously but at the same time as that was happening big tech and social media and everything was creeping up um, this sounds dreadful, doesn't it? It sounds like a conspiracy theory. But basically, they started destroying paper shuffling white-collar office yeah. jobs. Yeah. Uh, and, and so skills began to be different. And I, I think at that point as well, people stopped talking about cultural quarters and creative industries. Maybe we'd, we'd, we'd got enough by then. The other reason might be that suddenly we were on the tech precincts and tech this and tech that. I mean, I've got some trenchant things I could say about that, but, but I, I wanted to make the point that 
um, COVID's made it all a lot worse, but I think it started to change you're right. in 2010. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's an important point, I think. There was a signs of the of the model already changing before before COVID, and some of it was obvious, like overheated um, uh, residential property prices. We could see it in that form. But I think, and therefore, people beginning to not be able to, the very people that had reanimated the city not being able to live in the city anymore, as it were. I think that was one sign of it. But I think you're right. It was a kind of mm. a quiet economic shift again, like another shift in mode of production uh, going on. The tech industry revolution, which knocked out, quietly knocked out, and was was sapping uh, a lot of demographic diversity of jobs from the from the city areas. Just to give you an example, uh, there's the rather improbably or rather appropriately um, surnamed Professor Otto, the uh, the Ford Professor of of AI and uh, you know r robots at uh, at MIT, is brilliant uh, guy. He's convinced me that there were, as you were alluding to, there was beginning to be a, a further loss of blue collar jobs from the inner city in the in the in the period uh, before COVID, but also quite a, a loss of some you know managerial and administrative jobs mm. were beginning to go because of automation anyway and that actually what covid did was not invent some of the hybrid working world and the online retail but accelerated it by 20 years and i think there's something in that so it's, yeah i think it certainly yeah. accelerated it. Yeah. you know whether it's, it's 10 or 20 years it's accelerated it dramatically um, i don't know if it's 20 years but it, it seemed to happen very rapidly didn't yeah, uh, and so I, uh, you're right. You know, saying, and it, it, yeah. So just one remembers. Go on. mm. No, it's just I'm only. I'm just saying. No, I, no, it's I, okay. I, I, I agree with you com completely that I think that there was a, that, that in a sense, this cultural discussion fits into an economic discussion, both yes. being enabled by an economic transition, but also creating its own dynamic a bit. Uh, and then, then the economics changes again. It was changing before COVID, and it's been accelerated by COVID. But w there we are now, right? There we are now, which is that we've we learned in Australia yesterday, I think it was, that half a million people moved in Australia during the COVID. Uh, you know, from a population of two of twenty five million, half a million moved. Um, in you know, that's I think right. more than twice what normally uh, happened in that period. Anyway, what I'm saying is let's, let's now focus on what does this COVID moment mean for this culture in the city discussion? So you go, what do you think? Well, I think I, I got, I once got asked, sorry, this is a slight, um, I'm deviating slightly here, but it's the same point. I got asked in Kent in, uh, or in, um, the early 90s right john where would you build where do you think we should build houses and i said well some people will want to live in the city center some will want to live in the inner suburbs some will want to live in the outer suburbs some will want to move out to places like maidenhead and brighton and, and you know uh, luton some will want to live in villages and smaller towns some will want to live at the the countryside and on the coast and they said do you charge money for that <laughs> <laughs> well it's the same now Tim. some places will get affected more than others some people will take the chance to move up to queensland because they probably i mean the weather's warmer say that and it's you know um it's attractive place um southeast queensland especially um, I would say. Uh, some people will want to move to Newcastle, which is, I think is a very bonny city, you know, just north of Sydney, as you know. Um, and other people will want to say, bugger, excuse me, no, I'm getting right out of here. I'm going to go to, um, I was going to say Byron Bay. I don't think that's a real place. But, the, but, but you, the logic of what you're saying, which I think is right, right, which is that choice has now entered the equation. That, that more choice mm. and more diversity of location has entered the equation, right? Which we, we, mm. we were, remember, we were saying up until the COVID moment, partly because we hadn't sure. noticed some of the counter trends that you're talking about, that we were saying that the, the paradox of, of automation and of um, 
digital is that actually it seems this face-to-face agglomeration thing has survived it because, and we convinced ourselves, mm. because you can't do certain things except face-to-face. Now, we, we've seen, you know, that although I deny for the second time I'm a, I'm a Marxist, the, the Marxist, uh, the one great phrase, uh, you know, several great phrases, but not a great philosophy, which is, you know, uh, all that solid melts into the air. I, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, it, it occurs to me that the, the, the revolutionary nature of what's been going through has dissolved some certainties and some business sure. models, right? So where does it leave the, the, the culture and the city discussion and the creative industry discussion? Do, uh, we, do we now need, does well, the creative class, is it like its agglomeration is gone? Does it still exist? Where is the creative class going to be? No, it still exists. It might just no kind of rep be representing itself in quite the same way. Um, and some cities are still going to be agglomerations of these types of activity. Um, whether in, in policy terms it's going to be flavour of the month again, I'll take a city like Brisbane. It might not be trying to build um, you know, another creative or cultural quarter, there is one being muted, and it's probably a good idea. Um, but it might be looking at, well, if we're going to double or, you know, we're going to grow the city by 50%, we're going to need other stuff, surely. I mean, you know, we might need new arts activities, maybe no all big things like the State Opera Company, which we've already got, um, but we might need stuff up the road, say, there's a, there's a town which is start of the Sunshine Coast called Maruchido. And so that's a place that you might think, well, you know, maybe they want a, a theatre or something like that, you know, or down in Logan, which is your blue collar place. Um, you know, what, what kind of things might happen there? So I'm trying to say that there's still an argument about culture in the city. Uh, and in some places, there might be cultural quarters and stuff like that creative industries again but um it's going to be quite uneven you know it's going to apply more in some places than in others and it might not focus on creative industries or the creative class it might just look at the arts interesting i agree i think it's interesting because that plays back to something i mentioned earlier on in the conversation and i want to go to brisbane and so an seq to kind of conclude this this discussion on a high note is the um, is the although it's been pretty good so far is the um, is the uh, idea that the uh, that I, I think the the central experience district idea is probably right, which is that um, that we might see you know although it's interesting you know I started using CBD uh, after decades of not using it only when I thought it was disappearing you know the i never liked the idea of business bit, yeah. very much you know but then i thought no don't go uh since covid don't go you know but but um i never liked them because they were single use kind of it's like canary wharf who, who really likes canary wharf you know as opposed to king's cross at the moment you know and mm-hmm. and google goes to king's cross rather than canary wharf because it was too sterile and single use and very kind of 80s you know and i think so, you know, um, CBDs have always been a bit problematical, and maybe there aren't that many actual, just solidly single-use, you know, but business has obviously been a central plank of the attraction of city centres that survived the knowledge economy kind of moment and digital in the first generation. They, people went to the inner city. Google is, is in King's Cross. It's not dispersed, as it were. However, mm-hmm. um, there's a strong argument. What do you think? And then I want to go to the, the Olympic moment because that's like a – a big culture in the city moment, if ever there were, were were one, is the what do you think about the idea that actually your point I think is that there will be cultural events and venues are not going to lose their attraction and people potentially will what you know being bored at home in their hybrid working universe want to go into the city a bit more you know to yeah. be cultural and have a drink and we're picking up John some evidence that uh, because people are working two or three days only in the city, that, that Wednesday night has become some people's Friday night drink uh, in the city. So there's a bit more activity sometimes in the middle of the week in some of these cities. Uh, Leeds, at, Leeds at weekends, for example, Leeds in the week has uh, got yeah. only 60% people back in the office. It's got 150% people back in the pubs. And, you know, it's party city at weekends. And I think Melbourne is, is becoming a bit like that. So do you think that's the kind of thing we're going to see? 
um, yeah, I do up to uh, up to a point. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of the city centre here. You know, it's this is Brisbane. It's not all that interesting as a place. You know, it's it's got some nice bits. It's, the shops are pretty good, but the hospitality sector seems to me, you know, be terribly all that well developed. Um, there's less choice, say, than in Melbourne, um, and um, walking about is not apart from walking up and down the mall, isn't isn't actually that easy. Um, so I think all of this stuff could come to play in the city centre here, which looks fabulous. You should see the skyline. You know, it's just at the ground floor level. I think we could be sorting some of that out. And then round the city centre, you've got. I don't like the word precincts, but you've got these neighbourhoods and places and districts that have popped up. South Banks is getting a bit old now, it's, it's, it, and it will be giving new energy, I, I understand. Places like Newstead, Bowen Hills, New Farm, you know, it, now all of these, to some extent, have got arts activities and venues, or will have. So, you know, I can see that this... This is it's kind of like you know moving around London, uh, and you still have the same pressures of gentrification, but you know you've still got Fortitude Valley, you've still got the Judith Wright Centre, you've got all of these things, and they're there. So, so I think the yeah, I think we can underline this bit by saying that I think that that economic transition that cities never stop seem to stop doing has has moved towards maybe uh jobs getting more dispersed on a on a on a bigger basis than we expected before covid and maybe we'll see the city centers become even more for visitor attractions and uh, and stuff is that what you think because i think that i think that now uh, I, I, probably uh, the balance will change but you know i don't think people would come into the city from far away just to go to the pub all that yeah. often. But yeah. If they're in the city anyway, they would expect to do that sort of thing. Um, uh, I said earlier that if you've got a good theatre, people will yeah, drive no, for an hour I, and a half yeah. to come I don't in. Want to give I don't that, want to give you the impression. That happens here. So I, I've, I'll have given the impression thus far that I'm still a student obsessed with Marxism from the 60s, and also I like having a drink. But what I what I really meant was that the I think cities are going to have to get on their horses and you know, as it were and really work at attracting people back into their city centres because of the range right. of cultural activities you can do, not just have well, a. Well, that's true. And, and true, absolutely true. And that was what you know when we used to argue about the twenty-four-hour city, like you said earlier. You know they were shutting everything down. And we had to build this argument about why this is a bad idea. Well, now we know that 24-hour cities, maybe that might be a wee bit too long now that I'm, now that I'm quite old, you know, and, and past all that kind of thing. But I reckon 16 hours, maybe 18 on the weekend, that's, that, you know, that's enough. And, and there will be some bits of the city where it, it can stay. I mean, Lisbon, they moved um, all the noisy stuff into the old dock area. You, you can stay till six in the morning if you want. <laughs> but the other parts, like the I barrio... Always, I was always a party. Uh, I, it was always very rich for me doing 24-hour strategies and, and actually, you know... Uh, like let's do city center cultural economics i was always the guy who was back in bed by 11 o'clock even when i was 16 i i was never a party goer you know a party pooper by trade me you know affecting to be sociable you know that, that's that's my thing no no i want to one more thing yeah. one is what is about moving on to this discussion segues in a bit to you know the fact that brisbane's got a bit of an opportunity uh to present itself to the globe to Australia in a kind of new way. It's got the Olympics coming to the SEQ, you know, to Brisbane and the and the city region, as it were. Um, what what do you think the opportunity is, given the conversation that we've had, given the trends we've been talking about, given where the city is likely to be in in that period? What do you think the opportunity is for Brisbane? Oh, I think I think there's there's 
quite a bit. I mean, there's there's a lot actually. It's just um, you know how how much can you squeeze uh, you know the the resources that there will be and all the rest of it. Uh, I've been working with an outfit called the Urban Design Alliance, and um, they've been arguing. I should say we we've been arguing that uh, as well as putting in new stadia or rebuilding stadia and proving it um, and transport infrastructure and, and bits of kit like the athletes village uh, and, and all of that which you have to do it's important to have some stuff in other parts of the city region which again that that's been taken on board by um, the state government and others um, well then I think when you've got to that stage you could build in other things like the idea of mixed use places development that helps make these places stronger um, se sectors of the economy that, that could be growing because there's going to be more people around even local population is going to grow um, not just the visitors but there will be visitors too so you there's the tourism and hospitality thing too. So suddenly you're looking at kind of like a menu of, well, do we need the new arts venue up there? Do we need, what, what happens if we build a tourist attraction just there um, or in that? And, and so the, the, the people in these towns and regions are going to come forward with proposals and um, put all that in. Now, I, I can see how that'll all have to be sifted down you can't do everything everywhere all of the time but nevertheless there'll be some really good stuff i think that'll come through and it'll be about place urban design walkability connected places railway stations that are a joy to arrive at um, well, yeah the public realm the arts and then this sort of nighttime hospitality stuff which again you know it might be fortitude valley in the cities open all night but not everywhere's going to want to do that nor should they but you could still have more of uh, an evening economy if you like um up in noosa or which it has actually but maruchidor um uh, that could work in other places even in uh, the gold coast you know there's there's the hinterland to the Gold Coast that isn't all just um, suffers paradise. There are other bits that are a bit quieter. So, so given that you, you and I are both trying to be thinkers and theoreticians a bit, as well as practical about these matters, uh, apart from, by the way, I should, I should in, a, in a parochial sense, point out that uh, the Olympics will give lots of people the opportunity to cross over the wonderful Neville Bonner Bridge, which Grimshaw have designed uh, in, in Brisbane. So I just want to make that very clear. Um, I, let's do a bit of theory uh, before we finish, right? Let's just say, let's let's look at what makes a successful uh, Olympics in terms of legacy or, you know, um, some of the kind of spin-offs that you can get. So Barcelona famously, and you know, you actually do know more about this than I do, but Barcelona, you know, famously used it as an opportunity to renew its city centre and, you know, lots of things are still happening 30 years later because of that that moment these and you know this is when i don't know if you agree with me i always get a bit annoyed when people do these kind of quick studies about the legacy of an olympics it's still happening in in barcelona i think so yeah i mean you know we're, we're i want to talk um you're i think very expert in and, and i've had a look at you know the kind of history of olympics and what they can do and how you need to organize yourself to maximize the impact of them and the benefit of them and apart from noting as i may have mentioned the the great potential there is for millions of people to come to Brisbane to walk over the lovely uh, <laughs> Grimshaw designed Neville Bonner Bridge um, there are certain aspects certain features of a successful Olympic legacy I think the other thing which I want to ask you about what do you think is a is the kinds of things that people should to do to try and maximize the benefit of, a, of an Olympics I, the other thing I think is around you know you, you look at people talk about what's the legacy of an Olympics and some of the best ones the legacy is still is still going on it's still you know like Barcelona uh the changes that they introduced in Barcelona to achieve the Olympics are still resonating and still transformed it you know for yeah. some of it for, for for ill life I'm sure some uh Barcelona people would think but fantastically changed place 
from I'm very much in this context that you started off with, which is the economic shift of a place that is actually losing its role as an industrial center. And, and the Olympics helped it reinvent itself as a post-industrial center, I think. So that's an amazing legacy story, I think. London, I was, uh, I'm getting a bit defensive about this, I realize, but you know, there was a kind of a, a, a pretty savage attack in the Guardian. It's always in the Guardian. It's always in the Guardian attacking the, the Stratford Olympics. And boy, did they ever go there before the Olympics? You know what I mean? Did they ever see this place that had lost its way? And it's been completely transformed, not all brilliantly, but certainly you've got like things like universities there that were never going to be there. You've got 4,000 jobs that were never going to be there. You've got an Olympic park that was never going to be there. You know, you've got tremendous rail public transport connections that were never going to be there. Yes. Industries that were never going yeah. to be there. People that were never, and all that stuff. But so, so I think, you know, for me, uh, one last attempt at wisdom, and then we have a conversation about what, you know, you've said some of the, some of the, uh, things that you'd like to see in Brisbane. But do you think we could generalize a bit? You know, how do you get a good legacy out of an Olympics? Uh, is you know, and I, I, I start with one, one danger and then one question. So the danger is, I remember reading. I can't remember where I saw this when I was doing some Olympics legacy planning for London. There was a great phrase which was, "Olympics can show uh, off a city or show up a city," and I thought that was a really interesting warning. You know, that and I used it to galvanize people to say, "Look, it's got to do this." this well but i think one of the the aspects of east london that's worth thinking about or maybe relevant to queensland is that there was a pre-existing urban regeneration spatial kind of strategy you know that we were in the thames gateway we were in the lee valley you know there were mm-hmm. things that had been thought through for 20 years before the olympics and we used the olympics to catalyze and speed up much of what we wanted to do anyway it wasn't just we invented ideas after the Olympics came. It wasn't just like that. What do you think about that? So we talked about, uh, I know that you know quite a lot about the transformation of Barcelona. And I think you were saying that the great strength uh, is that they, they kind of knew what they wanted to do by using the Olympics, right? And so could you say a little bit about w- what they knew that they wanted to do? And, and Marigal was their mayor. And yeah. as you say, you know, like a socialist, but he, he wanted to use the shape the market, I guess. He, he did, and he wanted new industries to come in. He wanted to show off the design, um, what would you call tradition, and the sheer beauty of the arts and architecture in, in Barcelona. He wanted it to become the most visited city in Europe. Um, but he also wanted to create new jobs. And um, at that point, we probably didn't know that the new jobs would be in tech, but um, to, to a lot of extent, but they've still got a textiles and a fashion industry there. So, you know, they, um, they, they mix up what they've already got and what they could have, and then they use the Olympics to lever um, some changes to the built form, which were very important. And, and they fixed up all their old arts buildings and stuff as well. So, you know, there's more to it than that, I'm, I'm sort of, not explaining it as well as I might, but you you get to um, London and you see a lot of good stuff, very good stuff. It's only been there 10 years. You shouldn't listen to The Guardian, Tim, you shouldn't. I mean, they're on on your side, but who is it that says it's not your opponents that should worry about? Yeah, it's the I'm, people sitting behind you that you need to worry about. No, absolutely. I'm not I'm not convinced they're on my side <laughs> any, anymore anyway. I mean, the... Uh, because I think that they they missed the uh, the reality of the transformation and, and uh, as ever with people who are purists, you know, they just uh, they 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 let the best be the enemy of the good, you know. And I think uh, <laughs> I wanted to end on this proposition to you that the uh, so I think you've 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 identified correctly. I think anybody sort of planning the Olympics in SEQ should have a chat with you and talk about this kind of stuff. But uh, how about this? That there are. You know some pre-existing strategies that that you can use these games to to deliver. They bring the, they bring some new money and some new momentum as well. They create relationships and uh, partnerships that can be uh, that are absolutely essential. And I think one of the things we mustn't forget about Barcelona and and London, I think, a strong regional identity, a strong kind of like civic pride coming together. Uh, and I think mm. that, that that cliche right. that that cliche that I might have stolen. From our friend Greg Clark, uh, who always says good things, but you know cities collaborate to compete, and I think that 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 that's that's a kind of SEQ sure. 
you know, that we've seen some good collaboration in SEQ, Southeast Queensland, for those that don't know, uh, and Brisbane. So I think that whole civic pride collaboration is really very important to it. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, no change that's any worth really does happen just overnight. So these are these are setting down structures and pathways and some catalytic projects that guide to the future. But we will judge the success of some of these things like Olympic Games 20 years uh, afterwards. And I think the Barcelona one is an <laughs> interesting one. I'm going to end with this, apart from thanking you. I always I wonder, learn. I always learn too. from you. Um, I think everybody would learn from listening to you. To you. Um, I love the phrase that comes out of the contemporary Barcelona scene, which is the mayor of Barcelona saying that her strategy is to fill the streets with life. And I think that uh, whatever urban regeneration strategy you and I ever come up with to anybody, uh, ultimately should boil down to fill the streets with life. And I think yes. that, that at their best is what creative and cultural industries quarters do. And the culture in the city thing is about enabling the culture uh, attractions to fill the city's streets with, with life, it seems to me, and for that life to then feed back into the cultural creative process. So I think we've learned a lot about yeah. that. Very good. And I'm going to conclude. Oh, your, I was going to just give, say, give us, the give us the last line. Give us the last line. All right. Well, when General Franco died, a lot of things that had been banned in uh, Barcelona, um, like the, the dancing that they do, the sardana, a dance that was banned. Right. Okay. Well, you know, you know better than me what it was actually called. Um, and other things as well. And suddenly folk were able to do all this again. And the film industry, which had left, bits of it started coming back again. So, you know, that's cultural and creative stuff bringing life back to your city. Because that's what they want you to do. I think on that optimistic note, we, we kind of end by knowing that cities reinvent themselves. We don't quite know what they reinvent themselves as. But as they do, I hope they uh, use wisdom from people like John Montgomery. You've been listening to the second series of the Grimshaw podcast, Culture and the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite podcast provider.